And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic, alongside us as ever from The Athletic, football news reporter Matt Slater. Coming up, we will look into reports that clubs in Belgium have voted in favour of merging with the Dutch Eredivisie. We speak to Alex Musio, chairman of Belgian sleeping giant Royal Union Saint-Gilloise, who last week sealed a return to the top flight. And this week sees the return of the Cheltenham Festival, the highlight of the British jump racing calendar. It is behind closed doors and under pressure to deliver for an industry hit by lost revenues and negative publicity. The former Jockey Club CEO, Simon Bazalgette, joins us. This is the Business of Sport from The Athletic. Reports emerged this week that Belgium's leading football clubs have voted in favour of a possible cross-border league with the top teams from the Netherlands. It was claimed that the Belgian Pro League unanimously voted in favour of an agreement in principle for what is being called the Beneliga. Alex Musio is chairman of Belgian second-tier side Royal Union Saint-Gilloise, a club with a rich history who last week were promoted to the top flight for the first time in almost half a century. A couple of things to start with, Alex. I suppose first one, how do I refer to the team in a shortened form? Union, do I? Union. Union is good. Union or Union is good. So how did you get involved with Union? What's your background? Um, Good friends with Tony Bloom. And a few years ago, uh, the thought occurred that Tony might want to become the majority uh, shareholder in a in another club, which would have to be abroad, of course. Uh, I spent a decent amount of time looking for the right the right opportunity, the right club, the right you know the right background, the right fans, the right stadium, you know the right league. And Union made the most sense for all sorts of reasons. And yeah, I'm a minority shareholder in the club. Tony would be described as a passive investor, is the terminology. And yeah, I'm I do all the day to day stuff. Give me. Uh, some of the reasons why Union fitted in with the criteria? First of all, it couldn't be in England. So then we have to eliminate the countries that don't allow full ownership. So Germany would be one, for example, unless you happen to buy a team in the fourth or fifth tier and then get them relentlessly promoted. There's some other countries like that as well. I would say it was an important factor to have the chance in the very long term to be very competitive and to and to be the best club in that country and that excluded quite a few others like France and Spain and Italy because you know the financial resources in those countries just you know off the off the scale in terms of what's possible so then you know you're looking at the likes of Denmark Holland and Belgium are probably the top 3 at that point and i note that as i say that it, it rings in my ears the ownership group that owns Barnsley has just bought a team in Belgium, yeah. bought a team in Denmark, and is apparently close to buying a team in Holland. I don't want to interfere in their in their takeover, but I've, I've read online they may be close to taking over a team in Holland. That's very important. And then, look, we wanted to find a club that had a certain history about it, had a certain fan base about it. Uh, the stadium, I don't know if you if you know of the stadium nope. at all. It's a listed building, and it's in a park. It's one of the most beautiful stadiums you will ever see. I think both of you should come next year. We're playing against some good teams next year in the top division of Belgium. Oh, I'll be there. Both I'll be there. The facade's Goodison Park-esque, as it were. It's it's on a street. We've got a good agreement with the with the commune about being there, and, and there was you know all sorts of other reasons in terms of. Uh, I think the Belgian competition is very strong as well, so it has good UEFA. UEFA coefficient, good clubs, good list of reasons there for sure. We talk a lot about multi-club models, and it's interesting you you bring up uh, the Barnsley gang uh, and you sort of hinted at Red Bull as well we, we often joke about the Barnsley lot being the the sort of budget Red Bull Paul Conway's been on the show 
And uh, you're right, he is running around Europe, uh, picking up bargains, put it that way. But it's all very strategic. So, so you've mentioned some of the kind of, I don't know, the kind of emotional reasons why and why you went for Union. I mean, how important was the fact that Belgium is good at football? That there are lots of good Belgian footballers and Brussels. If you look at if you look at who, yeah, if you look at who's producing footballers right now, it's Paris in the Paris suburbs. It's it's London and it's Brussels. Definitely important. Definitely important. It gives you. It just gives you such an opportunity to, if we, you know, we need to grow the academy quite a lot. It's in, it needs a lot of work. But as you, you know, uh, apart from the hair, you might not be able to guess. But I'm, I'm quite a young guy, so I've quite a lot of time to build something and uh, make something, make something very positive. And yeah, for sure, it's, it's that's that was a factor. Yeah, definitely. The other thing that obviously jumps out about Union is that they used to be good. That, that you're not just buy you're you're not buying I don't know someone with no heritage with no track record you're not you know sort of an empty shell you're buying something that 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 has won stuff and therefore could win it again right it's a team that just doesn't have a have an example in England at all there's no team like this which is unusual you know often different countries have different things and they think you know this is so unique or, or but actually it's you know it repeats in other countries. There's no team in England that's won the third most titles and then just to all intents and purposes sort of disappeared. So in England, if a team gets relegated to the championship or even relegated down to League One, you know, the likes of Leeds or or Sheffield Wednesday, you know, big, big teams, they're still very relevant in the national, you know, the national mind. In Belgium, my impression is that the top division is, that's it. That's where it is. And if you're not in the top division, then you're not thought about so much. The TV figures sort of show that quite well. And yeah, the chance to revive a club that's got the third most titles in history and never changed hands as well in in a negative way. So in Belgium, there's a lot of AFC Wimbledon, MK Don style. I don't want to use the word shenanigans, but I can't think of anything better. Um, (laughs) Which is, you know, there's a lot of teams that go bust and then they resurface having merged with another team and they've lost... They've lost a little something about themselves. They've lost, I mean, their purity, as it were. But Union's never, never had that happen to it. It's still got the the matricule dix, which is the it's like the license number of the team. It's the so yeah, it's yeah that was that was important as well, yeah, for sure. How long have you been involved with the club? I'm not sure you necessarily established that. So how long has this project been going already? So started discussing in February 2018 and 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 bought the bought the team in May 2018. Have you had to completely change everything since since taking over? To an extent in terms of in terms of the in terms of various levels of professionalism uh for sure but the spirit has stayed the same and it's important that we're involved in the community it's important that we keep you know it's a it's a fan base that has equality in mind and very anti-racism and 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 just certain feeling about it. There's a lot of older fans who do remember the the 48 years ago when they're in the top flight, and then there's a lot of young fans. There's a lot of expats as well. You know, Brussels is an interesting city in that regard. We very much try to keep the ethos. We've not tried to come in and and change that. I would say this is uh, one of my uh, one of my favorite podcasts. When I say one of my favorite. I only listen to two a week, and this is one of them. Um, <laughs> remember, remember listening to the to oh, the Wolves, um, your Wolves writer, who I know, so, Tim Spice, um, yeah. and he was saying how how the new ownership came in and really wanted to stamp their mark down. Which, just to mm. be clear, I have no problem with. This is not intended as trying to highlight a negative there and a positive here not at all it's just we haven't done that we've we've tried to 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 stay with stay with the ethos stay with the stay with the club as it is alex dare i say are you are you describing a hipster club could it possibly be that brighton is 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 linked with a hipster club well brighton isn't really linked with the club that's the i would i would say it's the owner the tony own is the majority owner of both but brighton isn't isn't linked with union there's other teams in, in Belgium, for example, that have a much clearer structure. And there are some teams that have eight or nine, ten players on loan each year or coming from 
the other club that they are supposed to be associated with. Whereas you may have, I don't know if you've seen, we've had, we have coincidentally had one player on loan each year. Last year, very close to not having one, only signed one on loan on the deadline day. And there's no link between Brighton and Union, with the exception of the majority owner being the same person, if that makes sense. Is that deliberate, Alex, or is that actually just circumstances because the two clubs are at very different levels, I would I would imagine, at the moment. They're definitely at very different levels. There's no doubt about that. But I also, I don't know, I see that Union will be there after I die and it's been there a long time before I get there. I sort of see myself as a custodian of the club. And yeah. it's not for me to judge other people's business models or, or club models or whatever, but Union is its own project. It is very much its own project in its own way. And I think think that if I'm not mistaken, in a lot of the other cases, the majority shareholder is an active investor in all of the different the different clubs involved. Whereas Tony is very much a passive investor here and just is not involved in in even an ad hoc way, really. So it's just it's just it's just very different, I would say. But you've been promoted, so now you are part of the national conversation. And yes. of course, you will matter in Belgium. And we, again, uh, you know, a recurring thing for us, post-Brexit, one of the reasons mm-hmm. that all these people are, are looking at Denmark and Portugal and France and Netherlands is for those post-Brexit opportunities. You know, that kind of yep. crucial 16 to 18 age where once upon a time, because we were members of the European Union, we used to be able to freely bring players over. Now we can't. We have to wait till they're 18. Are we now going to see closer links between you and Brighton? Definitely not for that reason. And I can't think of other reasons either. Now, it's an interesting point you raise. To bear in mind, by the way, that in February and May 2018, it was very unknown what the rules were going to be, how it was going to be, right? So... I can honestly say it was never discussed between Tony and I that there was uh, there was any that they that there was some consciousness that there was going to be 16 to 18 year olds only going to be possible in the European Union. It's not going to be possible in the UK. No one really knew the rules anyway. Now, as it stands, given our academy and the facilities that we have right now, there is no way that we could attract top 16 to 18 year olds. It's not realistic. It's not realistic. Our first team facilities are very very good. We have. While we've been in the second division of, of Belgium, Division 1B, we have focused a lot on the first team because there is extremely low revenue in this division, extremely low, and the only chance you, you have to get promoted. Now, there's different approaches where you can try and spend more than everyone by miles, and if it goes wrong the first year, then the second year is exceptionally painful, and if it goes wrong the second year, the third year is a disaster, or you can you can you can try and spend you know have one of the lower budgets in the league, and you will definitely lose significant amounts of money and have a low chance of going up. We've sort of had a little try to be around the balance in 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 the, in the middle of those two, and now we've been promoted. We have a lot of ambition. We have a lot of plans to improve different parts of the club. So we've just we've now got one and a half people full time on sustainability. We want to become the greenest club in. The European Union. We're going to expand. We're going to do more on the academy. We're trying to move the training facilities back to Brussels because we had to move out of Brussels when we arrived because the timing was just so limited when you arrive in May to get something arranged in a professional way. When we arrived, just just an anecdote: the players would drive to the stadium, get changed, get in their cars, drive to a training pitch. There was no toilets, no facilities, no nothing. Train, get back in their cars drive back to the stadium, shower, and then go home. So that's what we were dealing with. We wanted to professionalise, and there just wasn't there wasn't the option in Brussels to, to do that. Given the fact that you've tried to do things the right way already and that you're wanting to do things the right way going forward and you have very much respected the t- traditions of the football club that you are involved with, how do you react to the reports of the Belgian league wanting to merge with the Dutch league? It's been a bit misreported, I would I would suggest, right. to start with. Deloitte have been employed by various big clubs in Holland and Belgium to work on a on a proposed Beneliga. Part of the roadmap for for continuing to look into a Beneliga had in March 2021 a stop or carry on vote, they planned, right? Now, 
if you're one of the clubs in Belgium that isn't paying for the paying for the consultancy consultancy fees that are required to do this, and you're asked, do you want to carry on not paying for someone else to do work that might be good for you or not? The answer is probably yes. And if you're one of the clubs that wants to drive this, the answer is also probably yes. So the reports that the Belgian league has unanimously decided it wants to merge with the Dutch league are wide of the mark. What happened Tuesday, yesterday, was that the clubs unanimously decided to carry on looking into it. In terms of is the Benelegra a good idea or a bad idea, I think you've talked about this again on one of your podcasts recently. The only positive thing that can have come out of COVID in terms of football is that it has become extremely clear that the fans are everything in football because it's great. I haven't been to a game all year until last Saturday, but it was, I'm sure you've both been to games, but it is, it is truly hollow and as an experience. Now, obviously that was, you know, this was in a massive game. So I'm more talking about hollow before the game when you're sort of experiencing this weird ghost town after the game, you've, you know, we won promotion. I, I was extremely happy, but I couldn't help but look into the stands and say and think to myself, wow, can you imagine how different this would be? Can you imagine how much, how sad this is at the same time? And that's the first thing that comes into the, the equation with the Benelega. Is this good? Is this good for the fans? Now, I think it's arguable either way. I certainly don't think it's clear positive or clear negative. If, if it's a well-structured league that's fair, where you have you know, the best teams from both divisions forming one and then this promotion and relegation in a fair and transparent way that is long-term. And yeah, I, then I don't necessarily see that as a negative. I, I would note, by the way, that Club Bruges have been widely reported to be having pushed the vote yesterday, which I think is slightly true. And they have an IPO coming up in the next few days. Um, and I think the, the potential Benaliga storylines must must help that in some way and it inspires people to think that maybe there's more to come from Club Bruges because at the moment give them real credit where credit's due they are comfortably the best team in Belgium at the moment at the start I was saying how in May 2018 Belgium had lots of very good teams and no mega teams as it were which was a big thing Club Bruges still aren't uh, Paris Saint-Germain for example and they don't pretend to be or try to be but they are an exceptionally good team and they have created quite the cushion. And if you're Club Bruges, I don't think the prospect of winning the Belgian league easily, like this season, which they, I'm sure is unlikely in future seasons to win it quite like this. They are on an incredible run at the moment, but it's probably less attractive than a potential Benelega where you play against all the best teams in Holland and Belgium. So you can understand their motivations as well. Alex, I mean, I think the point about Club Bruges really cuts to the the, the the quick here. Cuts to the cuts to the whole point. Sorry, in that the obvious the obvious attraction for entering into this consultation phase, if you like, and it's been this idea has been round, hasn't it? It came up, I think, in twenty nineteen. It goes back even further than that. Cross border leagues, right? It's 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 what you do if you are a mid sized league and you see the big five leagues galloping away. Your market's too small. Loads and loads of links between Belgium and Netherlands anyway. Poor old Luxembourg doesn't get a look in, I don't know. But maybe, maybe you should invite them in too. But anyway, that might be hard to say. A Benny Luxembourg, I don't yeah. know. But, but the point is, Belgium and Netherlands, they're, they're you know, lots, lots of lots of cross-border links. Sure. And there is, I think, when you, when you think about it in terms of a market of 30 million people, there or thereabouts, <laughs> France is in reach, you know, as the fifth of the, of the big five. Mm-hmm. And... Club Bruges will be thinking, right, hold on a minute. That means I can now be starting to think of, you know, top 20 Deloitte year in, year out. And that's interesting. But for me, this will all be decided on what Club Bruges and Ajax and PSV and Feyenoord think, right? Because at the moment they have, what is it off the top of my head? They have uh, five European places. Belgium has five. Netherlands has five. There's no way, there's no way UEFA, who may well go, yeah, fine, we don't mind cross-border leagues because we understand that you guys can't compete anymore, but you're not having 10 because that's more than the Premier League. That's more than the Bundesliga. So you guys are going to, you guys are going to have to go, fine, let's, let's, let's merge. 
put our TV market together. Maybe that will play out. Maybe it'll be bigger than sums of the two halves. Who knows? We'll certainly maybe get a bit more competitive balance, perhaps in the league. It'll be, you know, bigger games. That'd be fun. But hold on a minute. We have practically halved our ways into Europe. And that, that to me, is the one that, that's going to require Ajax and Club Bruges to almost acts against their own interests. It's a very fair summary. The number of European tickets will have to decrease, right? It's just, it's impossible for a Benelega to have more, more European tickets than the Premier League or any of the, you know, any of the other big, big four and France leagues. It's, it's entirely correct. Where you didn't quite go with that, but where, where you may have been intending to go is that this does feel a little bit European Super League lighty in theory, where the big teams, they arrange for this breakaway league they don't have the votes that they need to do it. They push and push and push and say, we'll leave. We'll leave and set this up without you. They won't be, it will be closed. It won't be promotion and relegation. It'll be closed. And then the little teams, the little teams, the non-big teams in, in the two countries say, okay, okay, we'll give you some more TV money. We'll give you some more TV money. And that could be what it's about. I, you know, I'm not Club Bruce, so I don't know. But I do know that if at the moment Club Bruce get about 8 million TV money in Belgium for winning the title, I do know that if they were to even get one million more a season ongoing from this, it would definitely be good value, the, the Deloitte consultancy and, and having a few meetings and doing a few media articles. You know, it's, there doesn't seem a lot of downside for Club Bruce. So you can sort of see why, why everyone is quite happy, happy to carry on at the moment. But at some point, friction is, is inevitable, I would say. In any way, would a merger help lower down? You know, you talk, we began with you saying, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's either the top division or nothing in Belgium and there's not really any attention lower down. Would a merger and Dutch clubs coming in lower down as well, would that actually strengthen? That wouldn't happen. Right. Benelliga is proposed to be right. eight Belgian teams and 10 Dutch teams, yeah. which, right. according to publicly available rankings would be tilted unfairly in favour of the Dutch, as it were, mm. in terms of they've got more people. I can see how that's happened, but the Belgian league's mm. quality is stronger down down than the than the Dutch league. But re- forgetting that anyway, there'd be 18 teams in total in the Benelliga. And then after that, you've got the top Belgian league, the top Dutch league. Right. And that's how it would work. And there'd be the, the, the proposal is there would be the champion of both gets promoted the bottom of both gets relegated as long as they don't come higher than 14th, i.e. that you can't just have the bottom six teams are all yeah. Belgian, say, yeah. and then the yeah. seventh bottom is Dutch. They don't get relegated. They wouldn't get yeah. automatically yeah. relegated. There's a playoff between, I think, the top, uh, the top <laughs> between second and fifth, maybe, in Belgium and the second and fifth in Holland to get one right. more, and then they have a playoff against the second last of each country in the Belgium League. It's a working proposal at the moment. It's not clear. See, that's interesting to me, because I just wanted to just, just clarify that, because that was the bit that I couldn't work out even back in 2019. Will it always stay 10-8? Is there a way that over time the league could start to be, I don't know, 15-3 one way or another. That's not been sorted. It's too early, I would say. You refer to the TV money between the two countries. At the moment, they're roughly 100 million each, roughly. TV rights is a very complicated, very complicated thing in terms of when you get to a decent size, it does tend to really ramp. It does tend to really explode. Obviously, the, the big the big five leagues have got substantially higher TV money. And I saw that Turkey has around 350 million, you know, rather than you know the hundred and the hundred so the problem is it's all going to be it's all going to be a proposal it's all going to be a guess and one imagines that the consultancy company whoever it is will be incentivized to make quite a high guess to suggest that it's a good idea there is a world in which this makes sense for everyone and it does work there is a world if you combine the two leagues and you have the best teams from both those leagues and they make a league that is similar in quality to say france if that was to happen which is not impossible, the work that has been done up until now, if you look back over the last seven years of both countries and put them into the UEFA coefficient, it's around, it's more like Russia, Portugal, and still quite a bit behind France. But for the sake of argument, if it was as good as France, and if the TV deal they could get was as good as France, it is very clear that this would make sense for everyone, right? You know, the Benelliga teams suddenly have huge revenues, miles bigger than they currently do, but also the ability for parachute payments, for solidarity payments to the requisite number one new leagues in their countries would be enormous. You know, there'd be enough 
there is in theory enough money to, to, to make this work for everyone financially. Some fans will be against, some fans will be for, that's, that's normal. But you could imagine how there, would, there could be a real decent number of fans who would be in favour of, it would be quite exciting to get promoted to the Benelliga if you're one of the smaller teams, for example, whereas at the moment, a good season means maybe you come fifth or fourth and you you get a you don't get you don't quite get a European ticket or whatever. This time you get to be in the Benelliga and then you're playing against all the big teams all the time. It's very conjectural at the moment, I would say, and they have a lot of work to do. But the piece that I've read was that March 21, they have a vote to decide if they continue or they stop. Next step is speak to UEFA again and see what is possible. Alex, it's been great to have you on. Uh, thank you for joining us and and also more importantly thank you for listening (laughs) we're always grateful that's a big that's a big one but seriously thank you for giving us your time it's been fascinating thank you thanks guys thank you very much cheers thanks bye looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night yep you heard that right you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. The 2021 Cheltenham Festival is taking place this week without, of course, the huge number of spectators usually present as fans watch at home and place bets online. Last year's festival was criticised for going ahead as the coronavirus situation worsened. Well, we're joined by Simon Bazalgette, former CEO of the Jockey Club, the largest commercial horse racing organisation in the UK. He's also an independent non-exec director of the English Football League. Simon, just begin by outlining your career so far. The last 11 years up to the end of 2019, I was the group chief executive of the Jockey Club, which is the biggest uh, race course operator. I got into racing by accident about 15 years ago. My, my previous background had really been in finance and uh, particularly for media and entertainment and leisure and tourism businesses. I'd spent 10 years in the city. I then spent 10 years running a... Uh, music broadcast startup for some of the the major record labels. I got involved with racing, though I knew nothing about racing, apart from the fact it was a great day out. I quickly decided that there was a real opportunity there and helped them as executive chairman to start a media company for racing, which is now called Racecourse Media Group, and was executive chairman of that for four or five years. And out of that, the Jockey Club was the biggest shareholder because that was a cooperative owned by various racecourses. Out of that, you know, I then got plucked, having done startups for 15 years to go and run a company that's been around for 270 years and I thought that was such a mad idea that I went and did it and had a great time and the Jockey Club's the biggest stakeholder in British racing people some people still think it's the governing body but it gave that up thank god so I came in really as a as a commercial to help commercialize things and get it on a proper commercial setting and had a great run for 11 years and alongside that I I sat on the board of the 2017 World Athletics Championships in London I'm on the board of the Football League and have done various other things in sport during that time. And I'm now chairing a business which we've started called GVS, Global Venue Services, which is really to to help with sports, entertainment, leisure and uh, media businesses in terms of how they run their businesses and in various investment projects. Given your experiences of both football and racing in recent years, we've spoken a lot on this podcast about how football and clubs have been affected by the financial costs of COVID, how, how would you compare it with the impact in racing? Um, it's been challenging for both, very challenging. Any sport which relies on uh, attendance as a big part of the, the commercial model, as well as, you know, part of the, you know, just the excitement of the sport, has been a massive challenge and, and uh, you know, an existential challenge. Both football and, and racing have dealt with it, you know, reasonably well, but in different ways. I would say horse racing Although it's very good at beating itself up about the the position it holds, it actually has a very resilient commercial model. 
because of its relationship with betting in particular, there's a revenue stream, which is kind of a combination of media and betting revenue, which goes on even if there aren't people at the race course. Um, now, it's still been a real challenge. And for events like Cheltenham this week, you know, where they would, you'd get more than a quarter of a million people there, you know, that's a massive uh, revenue stream that's not there for the sport. But it's been quite resilient. It was the first sport to come back after lockdown and to convince the government that it was safe to race. And it's been, you know, and it's done a good job of, I think, entertaining people through the TV side. But it's been challenged. You know, there's been redundancies. There's been reduction in prize money and all of that. Football, I think it's been tougher. Football clubs are more, are less resilient, I think, financially. Again, you know, there is enough money knocking around in football and with the support of the Premier League and, you know, the opportunities to leverage and to raise money has been there. So, so far, you know, touch wood, there haven't been any clubs that have gone out of business because of lockdown, but it's, it is really important that, that crowds come back. As you said, we're, we're having this conversation in the week of... Cheltenham and therefore racing is going to be our main focus of, of of this discussion what interested me in that answer to set the scene before we really get into it is you said racing often beats itself up it over, <laughs> over over its situation what do you mean by that racing's in a funny position where it's actually in, in some ways it's it's in some ways the most commercial of sports because of the its various revenue streams and the things it's got but it's also very conscious of the fact that racing is not part of the, it's not as much part of the national psyche as football in particular and other sports. You did two lists, one of which are the sports that are most attended and most financially you know, important. Racing would be right up there as probably second on the list after football. Two million, six million people, sorry, go each year. That's second most attended after football and financially contributes about three and a half billion a year to the, the UK economy, um, which again is second after football. But then if you did, did a list of what are your favourite sports, racing probably would struggle to get into the top 10. And the reason for that is racing is as much a leisure activity as a, as a traditional sports activity. You know, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, people, people love a day at the races and a lot of people go for a day at the races and they'll have a bet and they'll watch the races and they'll have a great time and they'll walk away, but they won't think of themselves as a horse racing fan. So racing has this schizophrenia where actually it has a lot of really good things going for it, but it's also very conscious that it's very easy for it to lose media traction and public interest because people don't necessarily think about it when they've gone away from their days racing in the same way that they do in football, because it doesn't, it doesn't create the same kind of narratives that supporting a football team would do or whatever. And so the big, the big thing you'll always hear from people who come into racing, and it was big for me, is is really trying to create a bit of engagement. How do people follow the story without just looking at lots of races and say, well, how the hell do I process? Probably got three or 400 horses racing this week in different races. How, how are you supposed to work out what, how one race relates to, relates to another? You know, you go away next week and you're kind of thinking, well, wh who am I supposed to be thinking about this week? In football, it's very easy. You, 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 you pick your club and you kind of, the, the story is kind of there. So so that's that's why racing racing realizes it, it it has some risks around it in terms of you know real engagement and in, in being embedded in people's lives. But equally, I think it's got some great opportunities. Simon, it's really interesting to hear you you, you make that point about racing kind of as an industry as a as a sort of um, you know kind of phenomenon in terms of a live events, and yet it's not necessarily part of our national conversation in terms of being a sport it's not people I don't know many people maybe because I don't live in sort of a racing community that that grow up wanting to be a jockey but then you could say the same about you know wanting to be in the NBA you know that that's the other end of the spectrum yeah, isn't it that's it's, true it's not it's clearly not for everybody um I think I'd even struggle with a point to point I mean I'm you know but but the point is it's it it, it sort of does exclude a lot of body shapes but what can racing do then to become part of the national conversation. And one, one thing I'm thinking about is, is Cheltenham, right? Cheltenham, the Grand National, but particularly Cheltenham, there's this big sort of issue around the Irish are coming and that creates a real conversation. There's a little bit of more normal sporting competition there. And I know there's been attempts to create racing events where, you know, GB and Ireland takes on the States in a sort of Ryder Cup style event. Are, they, are, these, are these things that racing could do more of? Yes, but equally, they're all things that, um, that are absolutely on the agenda and are pushing forward in racing. A lot of people assume that because these are the challenges for racing, these things haven't been thought of. Actually, 
a lot of the, the issue is not thinking of the ideas. The, thing, the issue is really getting the traction that you need to make them work. And the, but there are some great examples of things that have worked in the past. So you have, as you say, Cheltenham, you know, Cheltenham is one of the top 10 sports events of the year, both in terms of media coverage, in terms of um, attendance. You know, newspaper, newspaper um, circulation this week, particularly the, for the tabloids, is the biggest of the year because of Cheltenham. Equally, Grand National, the, the probably single most important event is the Grand National. I mean, that is in the public psyche. Probably more than 50% of the population either have a bet or sweepstake or some kind of you know, involvement in the Grand National. The problem is the Grand National is very much a single event and people trying to create the story leading up to the Grand National. And there, there can be great stories and there's been a lot of work to try and do that. But again, you know, it's kind of, it, it, for most people, it appears on their radar the week before and then disappears and comes back in a year's time. So it's those kind of things. But the things you're talking about, for example, you know, you've got the, the Irish versus the GB, the, what they call the Pressbury Cup, which they promote at Cheltenham this week and gets good good coverage. Although the, unfortunately, the Irish keep doing too well in it. We need we need a bit more a bit more balance from the Brits on that one. But you've got things like other good examples. You know, you've got Shergar Cup Day at Ascot, where effectively they have a day which has become very popular. It was challenging to get going when they started it. You know, probably ten or fifteen years ago, where effectively instead of worrying about the horses, they have teams of jockeys. They have a UK team, an Irish team, a women's team you know, rest of the world team. And that's, that's got real traction. People love that. But again, it's a one-off event. So the trick is how do you create more of what the word that you keep coming back to and is kind of overused, but is narrative. So I think there are real opportunities around team racing to create a team racing championship. So, so it, there is a project on that on the go, which I think launches this year in racing. There's a, a thing that we're working on at GBS called City Racing, where effectively you will run a race day, a series of race days around the world through the streets of, a, of, a, of cities. And we're looking at uh, either Cannes or Cape Town to launch that. But effectively what that does is, I think one of the other things you mentioned is this, how do people relate to it when they, you know, when you can't really think of yourself as a potential jockey. Well, if you can't get people to come to the race course, bring the race course to the people and do it in the town because people love being around, the, you know, the horses. They love the, the event. A race, a race itself is very easy to understand and incredibly exciting and a very visceral experience. So, so you know, that, that those are the kind of things that I think people, people are, are working on. I think also, you know, there are some great stories. I mean, racing has some of the great stories. And we had one yesterday at, Ch at Cheltenham where you had, a, a, you know, a woman jockey competing on you know, this, in exactly the same basis as men, she won the champion race yesterday, the champion hurdle. Um, and, and, you know, and there are, there are women later in the week. And one of my, you know, one of my bets of the week is on Brownie Frost on Frodon in the, in the Cheltenham Girl Cup. Now she's not one of the favourites, but, you know, she's got a chance. And there's no other sport where you have that kind of story. So I think it's about, you know, it's about trying to work out how, how do you bring that in? I think the other thing that's really important about racing, which again is a real opportunity and you can see it working in Australia is that there's no other sport where you can actually become involved in the sport for so easily and obviously not as a jockey you're absolutely right and um, but it, you know there are a lot of trainers and and there are really a lot of owners so so you know you can you can have a share in a horse but not a lot of money and suddenly you're part of the sport you're suddenly a competitor in the sport and in Australia that's huge in the UK, it's, it's, it's pretty big. It's tougher because the prize money is not quite good enough to really make, you know, give you a real chance of making much money. But, you, can, you know, some people will make money. But actually, the experience in the UK is better than anywhere else in the world of being an owner. You, you know, you're treated like, a, like royalty when you go there and given champagne and free lunch and all this kind <laughs> of stuff. And if you're lucky enough to get into the and you can go into the, you know, you go in at the beginning of the race. You know, you're in the parade ring with all the stars and the trainers and the jockeys. It's a really, really exciting experience. And you've got a chance of being on the winner podium at the end. So You raise some really interesting ideas. I think you're right to, to expand that kind of whole syndicate idea is a bit of an obvious one for me because that is fantastic involvement. We'd all love to own a club, wouldn't we? But that's kind of out of our reach for most of us. But yeah, owning a slice of a, well, only, only a, a part of a, of a horse right, would be great. Fantastic. I also quite like the idea about kind of bringing the sport to you. You know, that makes me think of some of the efforts that sort of cycling and rowing and even squash, you know, if you if the mountain won't come to Mohammed, you know, it's that idea. And I like yeah. that. Well, I mean, and I think you make a, a really, really strong point on the on the fact that it is accessible for men and women. And I, and I, I think that's an obvious growth area for horse racing, you know, because it, it is it's like that golf 
is the other one really for me that where you can actually, you know, if you think about it, the two sexes can compete completely fairly on, on the same on the same playing field. So that's that's an obvious one. One one I've often wondered, and I'm not I'm not like a racing fan really, but I I do, you know, like many general sports fans, take an interest in Cheltenham and the Grand National. And, and a couple of times I have got excited about you know the race for the most wins in a season. You know, there's been yep. some great stories around people yep. getting helicopters so they they've got they've got a ride five times in a day and all that sort of stuff and it has grabbed you know has has entered the 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 national conversation i sometimes then other years just sort of struggle to know who's good who's up who's down i don't you just need personalities in 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 sports be it formula one or golf or tennis whatever it is particularly these individual sports and i'm not always sure who the key personalities are in in racing yeah, and I think again, that's that's been an area where there's been a lot of thinking and a lot of and working out, you know, why partly why that is because there's in, some inherent issues. If so, with jockeys in particular, who are the obvious people, you know, to 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 make the stars of. I mean, they they're working seven days a week. They when they race, they're racing from you know midday or one o'clock through till six o'clock, and sometimes in the summer, going off and racing in the evening. But, you know, if they win a race, they're probably riding in the next race. 20 minutes later, it's, it's, it, you know, and, and so, you know, there, I, I remember when I came into the race and having exa- into racing and having exactly this discussion is, well, surely the jockeys should be doing more. We should be making them stars. But when you realize that actually they're not, they're not able to do what other sports stars can do. They don't have, you know, five or six days of downtime and training, which is flexible. You know, they've actually got a pretty heavy agenda. So, so, and plus the fact that when they're racing, they've got goggles and helmets and, you know, I mean, you know, trying to tell one from the other in the race, you know, is, is pretty tough. But I think they've done, I think there's been hell of a lot of progress in that. We've had our Frankie de Torres, obviously, and the AP McCoys and, you know, Ruby Walsh's. I mean, they are some great characters. I think the women coming through are unbelievable. I think they're going to be, you know, I think they are really, you know, I think they're going to really capture the imagine, imagination. But you've got the trainers who are all, you know, quite eccentric, interesting, you know, slightly mad people, and they always give good, give good media. Um, the, the difficult, the, and, and in the horses is always a bit tough, particularly in flat racing, because they tend to have very short careers in flat racing, particularly if they're really good. You know, it, it, in, in theory, if you have a really good horse that wins a derby, you know, as a three-year-old in really its only first year at racing, it, then it's now more valuable for breeding than for racing, and it could get retired. And so, you know, it's gone. Uh, jumps racing that's why jumps racing probably has more engagement in in public is because the horses you know go on forever and we saw a horse yesterday and it was at the arkle at the age of 11 that had raced in it five or six times you know and finally you know finally won the race uh you know that's 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 the kind of thing that people love and that thing is one of the things about Cheltenham because you see the same horses coming back and competing and it's it's a you know you've really got those rivalries and the horses are the horses are as much the stars as the people when you look at it commercially and and sponsors coming to the sport are, are sponsors interested in the sport at the moment are they steering clear of the sport is it the same as it was 10 years ago it's still a very vibrant sport for sponsors but there are a couple of big challenges that sport just inherently has and has and is on its risk register one is that the biggest challenge is the the potential welfare issues with horses however good the sport gets and it's got a lot better and it's improving all the time it does a fantastic job of looking after the horses but you can't go away from the fact that you might sponsor you might have a sponsor sponsoring a race where a horse is injured or may might even die and that's that's a real challenge. So there are certain sponsors that just think that's they, they just don't even want to take that risk. That's something that other sports don't have to deal with. And then, of course, you've got the link with the gaming industry. It's in, in you know, every sport has it. But in horse racing, it's, it's a symbiotic relationship uh, and you can't get away from that. And again, there are although they've done a good, good job of bringing other other brands in that that is a that is a drag factor. Uh, on the sport that that it's you know that a lot of the media coverage is really around you know the betting rather than you know as much as the sport because the truth is the biggest the biggest engagement in horse racing is from punters so you've got to find brands that are willing to willing to take that head on really and they've been you know done a good job of that on the whole you know we've had Investec as a as a sponsor for for a number of years uh, uh, they've had a number of good you know Magnus was uh, until this year the sponsor at Cheltenham so they've catched some good brands the main body of them tend to be gaming companies 
drinks companies, financial, you know, still quite a lot of financial institutions, although they've been, since the financial crash of 2008, they've been less, less keen to be seen to be part of it. Is the industry nervous about the upcoming review of UK gambling law? Yeah, I think all sports are nervous about that. I mean, ra- racing tends to have a privileged position in these kind of things because it's seen as the safest form of gambling. Um, and the, all the evidence supports that. And uh, at, plus, it's a sim- you know, it's, it's, uh, the involvement with racing makes it, means it contributes a huge, huge amount back into the economy, and particularly the rural economy, which is always needs, always needs um, you know, some support. That line you said in the start of that answer about it being the safest form of gambling, what, what does that mean? Because there are a lot of people who, who listen to this who are incredibly critical of, of gambling and have made us both well aware of it over recent weeks uh, and months. How, how, can you have a, how can you have a safe form of gambling? Any leisure activity that carries risk, uh, such as, such as uh, having a bet or having a drink, you know, or, or bungee jumping or whatever it is, there, there's always going to be a risk. The, the risk in, in betting is clearly, you know, people becoming addicted and, and doing harm to themselves. The issue is you're, you're trying to, challenge, you know, as, as the drinks industry has faced and the cigarette industry, you know, which, uh, you know, quite rightly has been restricted. There are, because with cigarettes, you know, it was causing harm to everybody who was doing it. With gaming, the truth is it's doing harm to, you know, a very small minority and they definitely need to be protected. And they need in the, in the gaming industry, I think, dropped the ball about five years ago when they stopped taking that seriously and they felt that they could, they didn't have to take that seriously. Well, they, they, it was proven that they did. But equally, that doesn't mean that betting is a bad thing. Betting for 99% of people, betting is a great fun activity, which they, you know, often a social activity, one they have a lot of fun with, and there's no harm done to them at all. That's fine. That's fine. I mean, and Mark mentioned that we, you know, we almost have to make a bit of a disclaimer in that. We in previous weeks have talked a lot about gambling. And last week we talked a lot about the football index scandal. And that jarred for some yeah. people because when they listened to the podcast, there was a betting advert in there. And that's something that we as journalists, you as someone in the sports industry, just have to sort of kind of go, well, look, guys, we've got to pay for this somehow. It is, it is, it's, it's legal. It's perfectly fine for the vast majority of people that do it. We just have to be careful. We just have to, when, when we talk about it, we just yeah. have to acknowledge that it's not, it's not safe for everybody. And that's, 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 that's it yeah. really. Betting is becoming more and more important, more entwined with football. I don't know. You, you mentioned that horse racing yeah. is still the number one bet on sport. Football's getting pretty close, isn't it? Yeah, and online, it's probably bigger than horse racing now. So yeah. so football yeah. has challenges that perhaps it didn't have 10, 20, 30 years ago when it was the pools. It, it, it's front and centre now. We, As I said, we mentioned football index. We've talked, about, we've talked about manipulation of games and all sorts on this podcast. But one of the big issues, of course, is shirt sponsors right on the front. And Rick Parry, I know you're on the EFL board. Yeah. I think it was only two yeah. days ago. He said it would be a disaster. It'd be a disaster for the football industry if betting companies were banned from sponsoring on football shows. What do you what do you think about that? Disaster is a strong word. Rick understands the the finances of football better than anybody, um, so you know you have to take him seriously. I, I think it would. I, I wouldn't say it was a disaster. I'd say it will be a challenge. It's like a lot of these things. It's um, it, timing makes a difference. I think if you're if you're relying on it one day and it's banned the next. You've got a real problem because you you know move. But the truth is, you know, if, if it was a if it was a phase process over a period of time, football clubs have big costs, particularly in terms of their players, and they have to tailor that. You know, and they've had to get better at it, particularly during lockdown. And I think in the future, the big issue is they're going to have to get better at tailoring their costs to their revenues. And if the revenues go down, because let's face it, the biggest revenue in football is is uh, is the TV money, not not the shirt sponsorship. If they have to tailor, you know, to, to take 10% off their costs, I think they can do that as long as they're given two or three years to do it. If, if they have to do it immediately from one season to the next, yes, it's a challenge because they've got contracts that they can't change. But, but I think it's about, it's about doing it in a managed way so that actually the, 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 foot, the sport is still sustainable and clubs are still sustainable propositions. You mentioned right at the top how resilient horse racing is, and I, and I, and I would agree, you know, it's it's been around for a hell of a long time it's going to be here long long after we're gone but it's it's had a, it's had a tough year um you know covid hit all sports we know 
but it's had it's had some bad headlines. I and mean, obviously Gordon Elliott was one. Sheikh Mohammed is another sort of cloud over the sport yep. and this whole issue with Princess Latifah and his how how, how central he is to the British horse racing yep. industry. How has horse racing handled those? Do you think? I know it's not your job anymore, but how how has it handled that? How can it move on? How can it get people talking about all the good things you wanted to talk about, all the ideas that the sport has? Well, I, I mean, it's interesting not being in the sport and therefore being able to take a kind of slightly more objective view of it or being less involved in the sport. Um, uh, I would say the Gordon Elliott thing, which, I, you know, I think was really bad news for the sport. That's really, you know, I think I think if you ask me what's the number one risk to British horse racing, it's it's getting the wrong side of the welfare debate. And, and if public opinion turns against using horses for racing, even though they looked after incredibly well and all that kind of stuff, you know, I think racing will have a serious, serious problem. And, I, and, it, it, and it may not be that hard, you know, it may not take much for that to happen. We know the way the public opinion can move very fast on some of these things, particularly in the kind of digital world. So I think that's the number one risk for them. I, I think racing has dealt with it well. I think they've, they've come down on it hard. They've shown that it's really unacceptable. They banned, you know, probably one of the best trainers and, you know, for, for a year, although six months suspended, really shown that it's unacceptable. And, and also at the same time, although it's, it's harder to get the, the visibility, there's been a lot of people coming out to show how well they look after horses and the amount of time and money that's put in, not to just look after the good and best of times, but if they get injured. I mean, there's, there's an extraordinary amount. There's this view that if they get injured somehow, you know, they're, they're, they're out. But the truth is there's a huge amount of time and money put into keeping horses alive and keeping them healthy and all the rest of it. Um, so I think they probably dealt with it as well as one could have done, given the circumstances. It will still, you know, the trouble is in people's minds that will live on as what they remember. Um, and so it will have damaged the sport. Uh, Simon, we will leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us. Fascinating to talk to you. Appreciate you giving us your time. Thank you. Thanks. My pleasure. Uh, that's it. Don't forget, you can subscribe to The Athletic for a special price of £3.99 a month for six months. So that's 40% off the full price of a subscription. Then you'll get all the analysis, the in-depth features and ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. All you've got to do, go to theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman, theathletic.com slash Ornstein and Chapman to take advantage of this special 40% discount. And we are back next week. Thanks for listening. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub an official partner of The Athletic.